When the race still lies before me And the wind is blowing strong When the witnesses surround me And my strength is almost gone When the valley plunges deeper And life shatters all my dreams then I lift my voice to Jesus, and he gives my spirit wings. God gives wings as eagles. God gives wings to fly and strength to rise above. God gives wings as eagles when my feet begin to stumble and my dreams begin to crumble I mount up on eagles wings run the race with patience let us lay each weight aside looking only unto Jesus he will be our faithful guide he has run the race before us he has won the victor's crown now he calls to every Christian, follow me to higher ground. God gives wings as eagles. God gives wings to fly and strength to rise above. God gives wings as eagles when my feet begin to stumble and my dreams begin to crumble I mount up on eagles wings I mount up on eagles wings Joseph. Now, anytime I think of that song, I automatically go to Isaiah 40 in my mind, the passage about Behold Your God. And that's kind of going to be the theme for the evening message tonight. We're going to be in Acts chapter number 3. Acts chapter number 3. And we had previously, last week, we, t we preached through the first part of Acts chapter number 3 with the healing of the lame man, talking about how he shows how we have access to God through salvation in Jesus Christ. And as we come to the last half of Acts chapter number 3, we have Peter's sermon that he delivers in the temple after having healed the lame man. But I, I kind of want to focus on the main theme of Peter's sermon here. And when we looked at this healing in Acts chapter 3, verses 10 through 11... It said, and they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. So we're left with this healing of the lame man, and everybody is wondering, they're amazed at what has happened. I don't know if you guys have seen uh, magicians, like at the fair, they have these cheapo magicians try to do magic tricks and stuff like that. But you also got the professionals like David Copperfield and men like that. I think David Copperfield did one that I remember one time where he teleported himself to some beach on some, some island, whatever, and, and everybody's like, wow, how did he do that, you know? So you see these, these, these con artists, basically, okay, so who are, who are imitating magic, 
and they have these tricks, and they're hiding the ropes or whatever they're doing. Like Chris Angel, he did one where he's walking on water. Well, actually, what he was doing was there was translucent little steps in the water, and, so, and you couldn't see that looking into the water, and so it looked like he was walking on water, you know? They're not really doing anything, and yet when people see things like that, we're amazed. We're left in wonder because we're asking, how did this happen? How could a man possibly do these things, you know? And it's the same type of wonder and amazement that these people are left with in Acts chapter 3 after the lame man has been healed. It says in three different times here that they are, um, what is it? It says, verse number 10, it says, and they were filled with wonder and amazement. And then verse number 11 says they were greatly wondering, putting the emphasis on this amazement, this wonder that they're left with. And verse 12, where our text starts today, says, and when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, ye men of Israel, why marvel at ye this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us? And so Peter looks at them and he says, why are you so amazed at what has happened? And why are you looking at us as if we are something special? And Peter's whole message revolves around, the con of, around this concept that it is not Peter who did this miracle, but it is Jesus Christ who did this miracle. And even, even in the miracle, Acts 3, verse number 6, Peter gave Jesus Christ the credit. He said, then Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It wasn't Peter who performed this miracle. It wasn't the church that performed this miracle. It was Jesus Christ. And so when the people are standing there amazed and in awe, Peter asks them, why are you looking at us like this? The implication in this verse is that Peter, when he went to that temple, he was fully intended to, tending to just go and pray. But because they were looking at him, he stopped and he had to say something because he knew that Jesus Christ uh, deserved to receive the glory for what he had done. So when he saw that the people swarmed them, Peter's moved with concern that the right person get the glory for what has happened here. And he asked them, why are you marveling at what was done, and why are you looking at us so intently? The people were making assumptions about how this miracle had been done by the power of, P of Peter. And it says in, in verse number 12, you men of Israel, why marvel at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? So they're making at least two assumptions here. That Peter has the power or the strength to heal all on his own. And Peter's acknowledging here, I'm not almighty. I am just a man. I do not have the power to raise anybody up and to heal them. The strength doesn't lie in us. But then he also says holiness. Well, what does holiness have to do with it? He's basically saying this, it isn't my good character that caused this man to be healed either. It isn't like I'm so holy, so, so pious of a man that God is looking at me and saying, oh, Peter, you're so great, I'm going to heal because of, because of who you are and how great you are. That's, that's not what Peter is, is, uh, is focusing on in this text. And he's trying to say, it wasn't our power. It wasn't our holiness. That's not what caused this to happen. And Peter does what we ought to be doing in situations like this, he redirects the glory from himself to Jesus Christ. And so the theme of this message is going to be lifting up Jesus Christ. It is more of a doxological message, which means just glorifying God. Okay, that's going to be our focus. We're going to talk about who Jesus Christ is and praise and exalt him for who he is and give him the glory for what he has done. Acts chapter 3 verse 13, Peter begins, he says, The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob... The God of our fathers hath glorified his son, Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let them go. Let's go and open up in a word of prayer tonight. Father, I, uh, I pray for clarity of thought as I try to preach your word. And as this text says, that you would be glorified, that your son would be elevated and lifted up, that it would not, not be us, it would not be about the flesh, but Lord, that you and your spirit would glorify Jesus Christ, your son, who came and died on the cross for our sins. Pray that you'll give us a clear understanding of who you are and what you have done for us and the glory that you deserve. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. 
So verse 13, let's go ahead and read the text, verses 13 through 26 here. It says, The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined, but ye denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I watch that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before hath showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heavens must receive until the time of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. And Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me, and him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, and in thy seed shall all the kindred of the earth be blessed. Unto you first, God, having raised up his son, Jesus, sent him to, you, to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. So our first point today is we're going to be looking at the Christology of the text. And basically, what does this text teach about who Jesus Christ was. Christology literally just means the study of Jesus Christ, okay? So what does this te text teach about who Jesus Christ was? Um, what was the Christology of the early church, and more specifically, what was the Christology of Peter in this passage? In the words of A.W. Tozer, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what we believe about Jesus Christ has an eternal impact. This, it makes a big difference. If Jesus is just another man, then why follow him? If Jesus is, was just a nice teacher, well, why come here to church? Let's just read our Bibles and learn some lessons from this great guru. But what's the point of being here? What's the point of worshiping this man? If all he is is just a man. And so we need to understand who Jesus Christ is. If Jesus Christ is a man, there is no reason to believe what he had to say. And maybe we could follow some of his teachings because they're beautiful, but there's no obligation to do so. But if Jesus is God and the Messiah, we must listen to what he has to say and we must respond. So the question we must ask ourselves today is who is Jesus Christ? So in this text, I've got uh, one, two, three, I got a bunch of points, okay? We'll just say that, about what this text says about who Jesus Christ was. Starting in verse number 13, Peter tries to draw a bridge between him and his audience in his message. He starts off, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, okay? So he's drawing this bridge to them because these are Jews. They're listening to him. They're probably thinking, what is this strange God that you are preaching to us? And Peter is starting off by saying the same God that our fathers Abraham and Isaac and Jacob worshipped is the God that hath done this. And it says here specifically, the God of Abraham hath glorified his son, Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate. So Peter is, is deriving this first point about Jesus Christ being the son, the son of God. In this text, the word son in this passage is actually not the normal word for son, okay? Normally, when you read the word son, it's, it's huios, okay? That is not the word here. The word son literally means a child or a servant in this text. It's a totally different Greek word, okay? And that's why some translations will translate it as servant, but it is not because they have a different Greek text that, that they translate it that way. It's because they're trying to be more consistent with the meaning of the word. And so you could say that this is God has glorified his servant, Jesus. And I'll, and I'll show why that's important here, okay? Because that servant idea is a messianic link to prophecies in the Old Testament that they would have made. 
when they heard these words. Those were, they would have linked to these passages in understanding it. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. Isaiah 52, verse 13. We're going to read through Isaiah 53, at least, yeah, let's go and read all the way through. Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53. This is an important uh, text to look at because Peter is going to continually come back to concepts that are found in in these verses here. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many, as many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred before than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations, the kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that which hath not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. And then Isaiah 53, we know this passage refers to Jesus Christ, says, Who hath believed our report, or to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yea, we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And he shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So understanding this passage in Acts chapter 3 as talking about God's servant has messianic appeal to this passage. This is what these Jews would have had in mind when they heard that term. And what, what is this passage talking about? He says, behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled. It's talking about the exaltation of this servant. But later on in Isaiah 53, it talks about him being despised and rejected of men. In verse number four, he, he hath borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. Verse five, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed, all we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Jews would have been thinking about these passages, about Jesus Christ, who came, and Peter wanted to remind them of this. Because to the Jews, the Messiah was to come and he was to establish a military kingdom and he was not to die, right? He was, he was to conquer, but Jesus Christ died. And so it's important that Peter makes this connection to this passage about who Jesus Christ is because he didn't just come to conquer and to set up a kingdom. He'll do that someday, but he came in the first coming to die for our sins, to bear our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's turn back to Acts chapter number three. Acts chapter number three. <clears throat> and so that is the overtone to this phrase, his, his servant, Jesus. And then he says, whom ye delivered and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. And so the Jews, they, they uh, denied him, they rejected him. That's what, that's what Peter's saying. You rejected this man. 
in the presence of Pilate, and Pilate was even willing to let Jesus Christ go. But verse 14, but ye denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. So the first thing we learn about Christ is that he is the servant of God with that messianic overtone. He is the one who has come to give his life for our sins, to bear our sins in him, on himself. The Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. Okay? The second thing we see here in verse 14 is that he is the Holy One. And the Holy One is intended to draw a contrast with the end of the verse, which says, but ye desired a murderer to be granted unto you. Peter's saying, Jesus Christ is the Holy One. He has done nothing wrong. He is innocent. He is perfect. But you desired a murderer. A man everybody knows has committed a crime, right? We all know Barabbas was guilty. And you desired a murderer over the perfect and the holy Jesus Christ. They were willing to substitute someone who is morally flawed, a murderer over the Holy One. The term is appropriately a reference to the divinity of Christ. Let's turn to Psalm 78, verse 41. Psalm 78, verse 41. It says, Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Who is the Holy One of Israel in this verse? The verse is saying it's God. They limited, God is, is the one that they tempted. They tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. In Hebrew parallelism, those two names are referring to the same person. And so when Jesus Christ is given the name of the Holy One, what is Peter implying? That Jesus Christ is God. So not only was Jesus Christ the Messiah who came to bear our sins, but he was himself God and the exalted one. And so this is in the context of the glorification of Christ. If you study the rest of that psalm, it talks about God's glorification. But it says, ye denied the holy one and the just. Literally, this is the righteous one, okay, the just. So it's highlighting again his innocence term would have been recognized for its messianic implications again because the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 verse 11 is called the righteous servant. I'm going to go back and read that verse real quick again to you guys. Isaiah 53 verse number 11 says, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. So Peter is constantly, he's tying back this message to Isaiah 52 and 53. So you denied the Holy One and the Just One. So Jesus Christ is the servant Messiah of Jesus of God. He is the Holy One. He is the Just. Verse number 15. And killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. This term, the Prince of Life, I commented on it when I was teaching through the book of Hebrews because it's also used in the, in the book of Hebrews. So I'm just going to read you my notes here that I got from the book of Hebrews. The word prince carries the more idea of a champion or a hero or even a trailblazer, one who goes before. Uh, George Guthrie made the following statements describing this word. He says, however, the word might be translated better by champion, the preacher using the idea of the divine hero common in the ancient Greek world. For example, Hercules was called a champion, or the same Greek word here, and savior. If this is the author's intention, it is comparable to a modern preacher saying that Jesus is the real Superman, as crass as that might sound. It was simply a way of expressing a meaningful analogy that Jesus has come to our rescue. But in the sense of this verse, Jesus was the champion who won life for us and paved the way so that we could have life as well. Thus, by virtue of the conquering death, he also is the author of life. Another way of taking this phrase. The idea of translating the phrase author of life honestly may be more supported here in, because he's making a contrast between Jesus and Barabbas, a man who took life. But Jesus is not a man who took life. Jesus is a man who came to bring life, to give life. He is the prince of life. He has conquered death. He has won for us the right and the privilege of eternal life through faith in him. And so he has, he has won that for us, and he has provided that 
to us. In being the prince of life, he is the one who conquers death and, and delivers it to us. And he tells us how he became the prince of life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross. He was buried. And to all the world, it looked like death had won, like sin had won. The demonic angels were probably rejoicing in their victory at that moment because to them it looked like they had won. But Jesus Christ three days later rises from the dead and becomes victorious over death itself. O death, where is thy string? O grave, where is thy victory? Jesus Christ conquered that death and by his resurrection he declared himself to be the prince of life and to give us eternal life through Jesus Christ. And then Peter ends this verse and says, whereof we are witnesses. This wasn't something done in a, in a closet or in a far off country and nobody knew anything about it. The man who is preaching this message knew firsthand the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he boldly declared that message because he was convinced of it. Verse 16, and his name through faith in his name hath made this man strong whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So Peter again reminds him, this man, th this really is, is, the, is the end of the sentence right here. He says, why do you stand at us looking at us as though we have done something special? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified him, son. And then verse 16, and his name through faith in his name hath made this man strong. This is Peter's main point to his message. It isn't us. It isn't me. It's not my ability. It's not my power. It is Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ's name alone, through faith in his name, this man is made strong. And that word strong speaks of being whole or ceremonially clean. If you remember, we talked about how he was laid outside the temple because as, as a lame man, he was not allowed access but now he is made ceremonial, ceremonially clean and he now has access to God. But how does he have that access? Through faith in the name of Jesus Christ. And so Peter redirects them to Jesus Christ. He summarizes the evidence against the Jews. He says they delivered up Jesus, they denied him, they desired a murder, and by their actions, they killed, this is, it's interesting, verse 15 again, they killed the prince of life. Okay, they killed the man who came to bring them life. And by the resurrection, he conquered that death. Verse 16, by faith in his name, this man has been made whole, has been made ceremonial clean. So he redirects the glory from himself to Jesus Christ. And then verses 17 and 18 talk about human responsibility and divine sovereignty side by side and how those two things work together. It says in verse 17, and now brethren, I want or I know is what that word what means, that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before hath showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Peter is saying, you crucified the prince of life. You killed him through your, your human, human ignorance and your, your human actions. You killed the prince of life and you are responsible for that. But... Verse number 18, those things which God before has showed by the, prof, uh, by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he, God, has fulfilled. You may have killed Jesus Christ on the cross, but God intended this to happen. God had prophesied through all of his prophets that Jesus Christ would come and he would die on the cross for our sins. And so even though we have tried to do something, God ultimately accomplished his will and is sovereign over this situation. Yet man did commit these sins. They did commit these actions, and they are guilty. And Peter says, you did it through ignorance, okay? The next thing that he talks about uh, telling us who Jesus Christ was is found in verses 22. We're gonna, we're, so we're going to skip over the middle section and come back to it because, again, we're developing the Christology. What is he saying about who Jesus Christ was? So first of all, he's the servant Messiah. Secondly, he's the holy one and the just, he is the prince of life, okay? And through faith in his name, we, this man is made strong. But in verse 22, 
It says, For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Peter is referencing Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. I'm not going to read those verses to you, but you can cross-reference it if you want. But basically, they say the exact same thing that he, that he says here, okay? So the point here is this, that, that uh, Jesus Christ was a prophet like unto Moses, that God had promised a prophet, and that prophet would come unto his brethren, and they would hear him, and it will come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed, okay? It says, <clears throat> so this prophet, like after Moses, that they accepted as a messianic figure was going to be the one that was Jesus Christ. In uh, Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19, he says that he is going to, he says, they have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren. So first of all, who is this Jesus? He is a Jew, okay? Jesus came as a Jew from the Jewish people. Like unto thee, like unto Moses, and here's the key, and will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. So the words of Jesus Christ were not the words of man. They were the words of God himself. And these Jews, they accepted this prophet like unto Moses as a messianic figure. And so Peter is clearly claiming this prophecy as a reference to the Messiah. Then in verse number 25, we see the next thing about Jesus Christ. It says, ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, and in thy seed shall all the kindred of the earth be blessed. Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you, in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. So the first thing, that th what he's stating here is that Jesus would be of the seed of Abraham. His purpose here is to show that the Jews are supposed to be the recipients of this message of salvation. They were the ones who were supposed to receive it first. The covenants were made to them, and according to Genesis 12, verse 3, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And the fulfillment of this promise to bless Israel and all the word that is found in verse 26 here, in all the world, Peter draws the application even tighter because God would specifically bless the families of the earth through Israel because of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who came from Israel. Therefore, because he came from Israel, Jesus Christ was sent to Israel first. I mean, you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We know the verse, right? But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, where? In Jerusalem, and in Judea, and in Samaria, and then unto the uttermost parts of the earth. The gospel was intended to go to the Jew first, and then to the Gentiles, because Jesus Christ came to the Jews. So laying again this foundation, who is Jesus Christ? He is first of all the Messiah, the servant referenced in Isaiah 50, 52 and 53. He is the Holy One. He is perfect. He is without sin. He is just. He was innocent. But he is also the Prince of Life, come to give us eternal life. Then he is a prophet like unto Moses, and he is of the seed of Abraham, as God promised in Genesis 12 verse 3, all the world will be blessed through this man, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So that is the Christology of the text. Now we're going to look at the responses. What were their responses? What did Peter expect them to respond to in this message? So if Jesus is all of this, if he is the Messiah, he is holy, he is perfect, he is God, he came to die for our sins, he came to give us eternal life, and he fulfilled all these prophets that were given by Moses and all of the prophets. Verse 24 says, Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. If he is the fulfillment of all of those prophets, if he is God, then what are we to do with Jesus Christ? If he is the just one, we should, we should fear judgment. To be honest, just, I talked about this a couple weeks ago. Justice is a, is a word that our world likes to throw out. you got social justice. We throw it all over the place. And it's supposed to be this thing we should all desire and search for, right? But the word justice means judgment. It is not a comfort to those who are guilty. If they really want justice, 
they're not going to have the end that they're hoping for, right? And justice, justice means we should be afraid. Justice is only a comfort to the guiltless. So if Jesus is the author of life, shouldn't we come to him to find out our purpose for life and how we can have eternal life? And if he is the one who fulfills all those prophecies from thousands of years before he was born in Bethlehem, shouldn't we believe what he has to say? And honestly, really, what was so bad about what the Jews did, okay? The Jews, by delivering Jesus up, denied him. And in killing him, they were rejecting who Jesus was. And they went so far as rejecting him to the point of killing him, right? Peter makes an application for those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior in verse number 19. This is, this is his application to his message. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the time of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So there's two things right here. What are you to do on seeing this Jesus Christ if you are lost and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior? The first thing you are to do is you are to repent. Repentance and, and be converted. Converted is this idea of placing your faith. They're very similar words. And he says, therefore, because of who Jesus Christ is, therefore, do this. Repent and be converted. Repentance was a key feature in the preaching of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 4, verse 17, he said, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the preaching of the early apostles, when the church was primarily Jewish, repentance was a key feature. Acts 2, verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And that message continued to be the message of the apostles, even when the church was becoming more Gentile. In Acts 17, verse 30, and at the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men to repent. In Acts 26, verse 20, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and through all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. And the conclusion here is this, that repentance is not just something that was told to the, gen to the Jews. Okay, I, have, I have a friend on Facebook, I've had debates till 2 a.m. with this guy, who believes that the Jews were saved differently than the Gentiles. Because, and, the, and he says this repentance idea only refers to the Jews because they are under the law. Okay? But repentance is not a work. It is not something you do. It is a change of mind. It is seeing my sin for what it is and it is agreeing with God about what he says about that sin. And it is turning from my sin to God to place my faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith ultimately are the same thing. Because one is turning away from self-dependence and sin. The other is turning to God and placing my faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the message here. He is, you are to repent, turn away, and be converted Okay, be, be converted is this idea of placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And faith is essentially trust. It is placing your trust in Jesus Christ. You cannot save yourself. You cannot be holy enough. You cannot be righteous enough to earn your way to heaven. Only Jesus Christ is the holy one and the just and the prince of life. He is the only one who can give us sin, uh, forgiveness of sins because God has laid on him the iniquity of us all, as Isaiah 53 says. And so we, play, we turn from our sins and we place our faith in Jesus Christ. That is the application that he wants them to get to on seeing Jesus Christ as he ought to be seen. You are to repent and to be converted. So what are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to reject him like these Jews? Again, Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And then Hebrews 10, verse 26 through 31, says, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifices for sin, but a certain fearful looking for of the judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. 
He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despot unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. Today, God is giving a knowledge of the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And if we reject it, according to this passage, there is no more sacrifices. You can't go kill a lamb and offer it on an altar to have your sins atoned for. It's all, all done, all gone. All those sacrifices are done. There's no good deeds that you can do to make up for all of your bad deeds. If you reject Jesus Christ as your savior, it is a fearful thing to ha- fall into the hands of the living Almighty, powerful, just, and holy God. And then Romans 10, 39 says, but we, but we are not of them that draw back onto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. As a Christian, we do not face that judgment. We do not face that condemnation. We are not of those who draw back, who see, see Christ and they're interested in him, but they pull back at the last minute before ever placing their faith in Jesus Christ. It's kind of like a kid who's about to touch a stove and his mom says, stop. And what does the kid do? What does Levi do? Hopefully he stops, okay? So, because if he doesn't, he's gonna burn his hand. But in this, in this case, this person's interested in Christianity. They're almost there, but they pull back before getting there, right? That's, that's the context. But the author of Hebrews is saying, we are not those. We are not those people. But we have believed to the saving of our soul. So as a Christian, we should thank God if we are a Christian that we do not have to face that fiery indignation and that condemnation. But if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you do not have to continue to reject him. Peter says in Acts chapter 3, he, call, he says that they did all these things that they did, they did through ignorance. And then in Acts chapter 26, verse, Acts chapter 17, verse 30, at the times of this ignorance, God winked at, meaning God is long-suffering. He is waiting for people to come to him to know him as their savior. He He winked at, he ignored, he looked over these times of ignorance, but now, at this moment, he calleth all men to repent. Now, what are the results? If you will do that, if you will repent and be converted, what are the results? According to this text, it says that your sins may be blotted out. Psalm 51, verse number one. Let's go ahead and turn there real quick. Psalm 51, verse number one. It says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Okay, both the the Hebrew and the Greek Greek words used for this phrase indicate a wiping away. In, in these times, ink would not permeate the writing material that it was placed on. In fact, we have old manuscripts of the Bible, and they were lost for, for thousands of years because somebody had scraped them, scraped the ink off, and written receipts for financial transactions over the top of them. We've been able to rediscover them because we have ultraviolet light and we can see what was written underneath them. But in that, in that culture, in that time, ink wouldn't permeate into the parchment. It would, and so it could be scraped off and reused again. It could be washed away. And that is, that is the implication here is that your sins, your transgressions will be wiped away. And in that, in that day, there's going to be a little bit of evidence, right? We've been able to discover these manuscripts because we have ultraviolet light, Right? But when God wipes away our sins, they are obliterated without a trace. There's nothing left behind. So the first thing that is the result, if you will repent and be converted, your sins will be blotted out. Then he says, secondly, times of refreshing may come. Refreshing here refers to a cooling or a drying of a wound. In the Septuagint, it was used for relief from the plague of frogs in, back in Exodus. And the word also refers to rest for slaves or animals, as well as refreshing influence of David's music on Saul. And it refers, it refers to entry into a new and unending eschatological life before the Lord. The closest parallel we have to this is the concept of rest 
That is found in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse number 4. In Jesus Christ and in him alone, we have rest. We have, we have this hope of rest. And that hope is fully experienced. We, it, it, we enter into it by faith in Jesus Christ. But we fully enter into it. We fully experience it in the millennial kingdom. So it says here that it, uh, the result is your sins will be blotted out. Times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And verse 20, he shall send Jesus Christ, which was before preached unto you, whom the heavens must receive until the time of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. And the idea here is, again, Jesus talking to the Jewish nation. And he's saying, if you will repent, if all of you will repent, you'll place your faith in Jesus Christ, you'll, your sins will be blotted out, the times of refreshing will come, and Jesus Christ is going to return when all of Israel is, is saved. That's kind, of, that's kind of what he is saying in this verse right here. The final result is more specific to the Jewish audience than it is ultimately to us. Because Peter was assured that Christ would come back to establish his kingdom. And that day is, the, is, is Christ's second coming. In 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2 it says, For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Then Psalm 95, verses 7 through 8. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, and as in the day of the temptation in the wilderness. So Jesus Christ has ascended to heaven, and he will stay there, it says, until the time of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. But for the sinner here, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior today, now is the accepted time. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart, as in the day of provocation and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. One of the main messages of the book of Hebrew is this. For those who are going to church, they're hearing the gospel. They're even professing to be Christians or acting like Christians, but they're not. They have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. That those people can get to a point where God says, that's it, I'm done. And God takes his hand off of them. And, and the, all those warning passages in the book of Hebrews, those are the people that are being talked to. People who are saying, I'm a Christian, but they're not. Their heart's not there. They've, and what, what ultimately has happened is they have hardened their heart. And, and the author of Hebrews references this, this psalm. Psalm 95, verses 7 through 8, over and over and over again in that book. So today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, because tomorrow is not guaranteed that the Lord will continue to work in your life. <clears throat> when we have our times of, of invitation, I, I ask those who do not know Jesus Christ to come forward in, in the invitation. Um, obviously, I'm gonna partner, I'll partner you with a lady if you're a lady. They can show you how you can know that you can have your sins forgiven. If you're a man, one of our men will take you to another room. But Jesus said in John 12, verse 32, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to me. So for the lost, will you come? For the Christian, this is the lesson. We ought to be redirecting glory to Jesus Christ, to his son. It isn't anything special about us. It, you aren't saved because you are this great and holy person. God saved you really probably because you are not a holy and a great person. He has chosen the weak things of this world. And so who gets the glory for all of that? Not you. Jesus Christ does. And so as we have moments where people honor us, where people praise us, we ought to be re redirecting that glory to Jesus Christ. Let's uh, stand and we'll bow our heads and have a time of invitation. Okay, so we're going to sing one page number 160. If you need to make anything right with the Lord, feel free to come forward. If you need to talk to me or, any, or anybody else, I'll, I'll go ahead and receive you down here as well. But we're going to sing 160. <clears throat> page 160, my Jesus, I love thee. My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art. 
mine for thee all the follies of sin i resign my gracious redeemer my savior art thou if Tis now in verse number two. I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. So let's lift up Jesus Christ. Daniel, do you mind closing us in prayer this evening?